This show is sponsored by Headnote, helping law firms get paid 70% faster with their compliant e-payments and accounts receivables automation platform. Learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently at headnote.com. Welcome to this episode of the Modern Law Library. I'm Olivia Aguilar from ABA Publishing, and I'll be today's host. In this episode, I speak with Lauren Stiller-Rickling, author of The Shield of Silence, How Power Perpetuates a Culture of Harassment and Bullying in the Workplace. Lauren Stiller-Rickling is the president of the Rickling Institute for Strategic Leadership. She is a nationally recognized speaker, consultant, and trainer who provides practical strategies for changing workplace culture, removing obstacles to women's leadership and advancement, minimizing the impacts of unconscious bias, and strengthening multi-generational teams. Today, Lauren discusses how silence shields perpetrators of misconduct in the workplace and how workplace dynamics prevent victims from seeking protection. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Mm -hmm. Okay, so can you talk a little bit about what inspired you to write The Shield of Silence? Sure. So part of it stems from my own long history of speaking up whenever I'm bothered by unfairness or injustice, whether it was in schools or college or law school or in my various workplace environments. And um, when I was uh, practicing law, I actually was a partner in a law firm and writing my first book, um, Ending the Gauntlet, Removing Barriers to Women's Success in the Law. And in that book, I interviewed women around the country who talked about their various experiences and shared some very sad or uh, upsetting stories about things that had happened to them in the workplace. And I would always ask, what did they do? And so often the answer was that they did nothing because they didn't feel there was anything that they could do. And I always found that troubling. And when uh, last year I had the opportunity to, uh, I was hired by the Women's Bar Association in Massachusetts to work on a survey that they were doing looking at harassment and other negative behaviors in the law firm environment. And that survey, which by the way is available on the Women's Bar Association of Massachusetts website, really revealed again this pattern of uh, misbehavior regardless of the generation of the person responding and the theme of you know when we'd ask what did you do when X happened um, invariably the answer was that they did not report because they didn't feel that they could so this has just been a troubling thing theme that I've seen play out on so many different levels throughout my own professional experience and when I completed my work with the Women's Bar Association of Massachusetts Massachusetts, I wanted to spend time writing this book to take a deeper dive into the research and a lot of other uh, background information looking at what is this power dynamic that causes people to be so fearful and how can we address it. Definitely. So obviously, hashtag MeToo is a very topical issue. Most of the MeToo stories that media outlets cover are related to the entertainment industry, but in the book, you talk about how this misconduct is pervasive in all industries. Um, could you kind of discuss some of those examples that you list in the book? 
Sure. Um, I guess the easy answer is name any field and you will find stories and articles about that industry and, and the pervasive problems. For example, there were so many examples of misbehavior in finance and in tech. Um, and I talked about those in the book. In medicine, I talk at length in the book about the experience, you know, even with the gymnasts and Michigan State regarding um, what happened with Larry Nasser and his, uh, you know, how how it got covered up that he was abusing young girls for decades. Um, mm-hmm. There are examples in the book of prep schools in which misconduct has been. Um, shielded and protected. It, it, it was almost that every field, every walk of life that I explored had these examples of pervasive misconduct. Um, and it's also important to stress that it isn't, it covers a wide range of workplaces. So it's um, not just, you know, the professions. It's also, there were studies on uh, restaurant workers and other lower status types of environments where it can be even more terrifying for the people there who are so dependent on low wage jobs, um, yet who are victimized day in and day out by um, people in that workplace. So before we discuss the circumstances that drive victims into silence, which is a big part of the book, could you explain how the structures within the workplace actually protect those accused of misconduct? Or more simply, how did we get here today? Sure. I mean, the the structural issue occurs on a lot of different levels. Um, And when you step back and you look at the workplace in general, most of the policies or procedures that exist are there to protect the organization. So you create a a human, uh, you know, an HR framework, and that framework is there to help on personnel issues or deal with employees, but they're also there to be protective of the organization. And I think that that's an example of a structure where people go and they expect uh, a perhaps a, a much more supportive and sympathetic ear, which they may get, but they also may not get. And, and too often in, in various studies and in, in the, my own research um, and stories, anecdotes that people shared with me, they, were, they report being surprised at the extent to which they felt that HR was there to protect the organization. We, um, very few organizations have uh, structures in place um, that really pay attention to whether people are held accountable. So there are these impediments, flawed investigations, not sufficiently following up on complaints to see whether there was any kind of retaliation taken against a person, leaders who may not be engaged in these kinds of issues or may not even know that they exist, depending on the particular workplace. So, um, you know, we see where those who are less powerful can be seen as problematic when they speak up, and that further can perpetuate power inequities. So, you know, the structural issues just are layered throughout an organization, and that requires that when you're addressing these kinds of issues, you have to be alert to the the full range of how these issues um, arise. Mm -hmm. Definitely. 
So we'll, we'll you discuss retaliation. So we'll we'll talk about that later in the show. But I um I first wanted to talk about how can the study of unconscious bias provide insight into the causes of harassment within the workplace? Oh sure. I mean that's such an important question because unconscious bias is at the root of so many of the problems relating to diversity and respect and inclusion that we see on so many levels at work. And unconscious bias is something that hides in the shadows because people don't do enough training on that topic and they don't understand it enough. But essentially, our unconscious biases are what makes us more inclined to behave in certain ways based on a whole range of issues relating to how how we, how each one of us was raised, our backgrounds, our religion, our race, our, our heritage, our school, our experiences. Um, we all have our own package of unconscious biases, and it impacts everything about how we judge other people, how we relate to other people, and it plays out every single day in so many different ways at work. And there are different patterns of unconscious bias. So one of the biases are are, uh, leaders wanting to believe that they are fair, that they're creating a workplace as a meritocracy where everybody can have an equal shot to being successful. And in fact, there really are no true meritocracies. There are always uh, inequities that exist. There are always people who have various advantages. And, uh, you know, how we understand that can really help us be better at um, ensuring we, we can root out unconscious biases. We There's confirmation bias that allows us to accept information that conforms to our belief system and reject information that does not. Um, and there's so many studies and uh, data that tells us how unconscious bias has an impact on women and minorities in terms of how they are hired, evaluated, promoted, the work that they are assigned, the network access that they have. And being trained in and understanding how unconscious biases work can make such a tremendous difference because, again, as I said, it just permeates every aspect of our environment at work. Definitely. The um, unconscious bias chapter of your book was was definitely very uh, eye-opening, and I thought it was one of the most insightful parts of the book. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate that. So most of the book talks about um, the two different kinds of retaliation, which is work retaliation and social retaliation. Could you kind of give an overview of these behaviors and then talk about the difference between them? Sure. So the work retaliation victimization really has to do with those actions that have a direct negative impact on the complainant's personnel file. So somebody brings a complaint, and when we talk about work retaliation, victimization, we're talking about situations in which that complaining party was demoted. They received a negative review. They um, had something very specific happen to them that shows up in uh, in a very concrete way at work. And when the research talks about social retaliation victimization, uh, you know, these are social science terms that show up in all these different studies. Here they're talking about those less tangible ways of retaliating because it's not documented. And so it's actually more pernicious in many ways. 
But that kind of social retaliation victimization occurs when somebody is ostracized at work for complaining about someone because oftentimes people um, may be complaining against somebody who is otherwise you know, thought highly of and a really, you know, someone that people see as a fun person or a great person in the office. And there's a sense of that person couldn't possibly have done anything wrong. And uh, the the tendency will be to take it out on the complaining party. So they can be ostracized. They can be ignored. They may be blamed if somebody is punished at work for negative behavior. People may be threatening towards them, but it all occurs kind of in an undercurrent way. So it's not as formal as something that shows up in your record, but it is this social impact that can be devastating to somebody. So in your research, which one was the most pervasive? Did you hear people speak more about social or work retaliation? It's an interesting question because I think the fear of both of these types of retaliation is so strong that the real answer is, and that is why people do not report. So in in terms Mm -hmm. of people who did report, often I would hear examples, uh, they made a report and three months later, six months later, a year later, they got their first really bad review or they actually were terminated or they were reassigned in some way. Those you know, are very direct work impacts that people attributed to their complaining events because nothing like that had ever happened to them before. Oftentimes they are uh, they will report that they always had very stellar reviews. And then there are many instances where people reported that they, uh, after they complained about certain types of, of uh, negative behavior, they stopped getting plum assignments. They no longer had access to key leaders and sponsors who could uh, and who were previously helping to move their career forward. Uh, They might have been moved to a different floor uh, away from the perpetrator, but also away from their support network. So kind of going in that category of being ostracized. So I would say that it, I didn't feel in the conversations that I had that it was one or the other, more or less. Mm -hmm. I I would say definitely saw many examples of both. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So why should we pay greater attention to the role of bystanders? And how can employers provide those bystanders with the tools to support victims? Well, what employers miss in this conversation is that the impact that being around, whether it's her direct sexual harassment or really negative behaviors that occur or bullying or somebody who is constantly making you know, racial or ethnic or xenophobic kinds of remarks or you know, efforts at humor, being around that can be painful and difficult even when you're not the target. And it impacts employee engagement. It impacts how people perform in the job. And too often, that's a completely uh, significantly sized category of people that's never even included in the conversation around Me Too or negative behaviors in the workplace because we focus on the victim and the perpetrator. So bystanders really need to become a much more important part of this conversation because 
they're impacted directly from what they're observing. And then layered on that is the sense of, I want to do more, but I'm afraid. I, I want to be able to help. I want to step in, but I don't know what to do. So understanding the importance of addressing uh, and, and providing an outlet for bystanders I think is an important part of this conversation and providing the right training because it's not even so much as empowering bystanders to speak up in the workplace by saying, you know, having some policy that says we encourage people to report other things that they observe or anything like that. You need to be able to intervene safely. You know, there are different techniques and different ways that you can intervene and be taught about intervention, but it's not something you would do if, uh, or should you, it's not something you should do unless you are trained to be able to discern when a safe intervention is possible and or when you may be actually endangering yourself or endangering the victim when you are trying to intercede. So training bystanders into how to do that safely and empowering them to speak up, I think it's a, a huge part of uh, ever being able to address this issue of workplace misconduct. Right. And I wonder if with the Me Too movement, if bystanders are feeling more empowered to come forward now and provide support. Well, I, I think uh, I think that I'm finally hearing and seeing more conversation around it. I haven't mm -hmm. seen any recent data on it, so I can't really say whether it's been quantified in any way. But one positive part of this is that more and more when I am engaged in conversations on this topic, there is starting to be a greater focus on the bystander component as a, a piece of this puzzle. Yeah, definitely. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. Hey, law firms. Getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? Inner Headnote, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system, their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you to get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. We're here discussing The Shield of Silence with author Lauren Stiller-Rickling. To get back into it, in Chapter 7, Fighting Back Against Backlash, you examine comments made by Heather McDonald, a Manhattan Institute fellow, and you address her argument that there have been destructive results from the hashtag MeToo movement. Could you share McDonald's argument with our listeners and then explain her comment, how her comments exacerbate uh, the silence? Sure. I used that example in the book, actually, because there were several levels of problem with her thesis and what she wrote. And so much of what she wrote went to the heart of all of the things that have been wrong and hurtful in responding to the uh, you know, torrent of stories that had been coming out uh, with the resurgence of the hashtag MeToo movement uh, since October 2017. So she wrote this piece where she argued how 
the Me Too movement would, uh, it, she quotes, uh, unleash a new torrent of gender and race quotas on the theory that all disparities in employment are due to harassment and bias. And she went on to say how terrible that that would be. Uh, and and in doing so, there are a couple of, uh, you know, I guess interesting is one word, but frustrating is another word, aspects of her thesis. So she uh, used this expression. She criticized what she termed as professional feminist uh, Susan Estridge, who had uh, written um, a, a piece decrying the lack of female voices in the L.A. Times op-eds. And and that was all she said. She called her professional feminist Susan Estridge, and then went on to complain, complain about what what Estridge had written, without in any way also acknowledging that the person she was complaining about was the first Harvard Law School female president, a clerk to a Supreme Court justice, the first woman to run a major presidential campaign. I mean, her list of accomplishments were quite strong. Yet. In this case, Heather McDonald just dismissed the accomplishments of Estridge while ridiculing her beliefs. And that's something that we see play out over and over and over again. And we certainly saw that play out in the Kavanaugh hearings um, in a very, very sad and troubling way on a national stage. Um, and then there was this other component to what McDonald had written where she talked about how decisions that include addressing equity will neg- negatively impact uh, anything that's done on the basis of merit, that it would basically undermine uh, deci- any, anything that's done when you bring equality into the conversation. And here, there was kind of a particular irony because she used it as an example um, of how the great composers throughout the years uh, throughout the centuries have all been men and how we should not decry that they have been men, but we should simply be grateful for the beautiful music that they have given to us. And what's ironic about that example is it's clueless to that idea that perhaps there were wonderful female composers whose work never saw the light of day because they lacked the network and they lacked the opportunities that their male counterparts have had for centuries. And the other ironic component of what she was saying is that one of the key most quoted studies that uh, in the science of unconscious bias has to do with the blind audition study that really transformed orchestras across the world when mm-hmm. a study was done to see if you did blind auditions, that is to say, where those who are trying out new musicians are not able to see the gender of the person who's auditioning, whether that would have an impact on um, the fact that orchestras were primarily all male. And it completely revolutionized orchestras around the world as um, more and more orchestras have implemented blind auditions as part of what they what they uh, do, the fact is that the diversity of orchestras have changed tremendously. So the notion that we should simply be grateful for the all-male music uh, through the <laughs> centuries, uh, it, you know, just misses the point on so many levels. 
So I just used that example because it was really one of the most depressing examples of something that I've seen, you know, published without any understanding of nuance and and the, how layered this all is, and recognizing, um, you know, that that she was basically being guilty of what she's complaining about. Yeah, that's a great example. So in the Shield of Silence, you not only examine the root causes, the root problems of sexual assault or harassment in the workplace. You also, it provides a a helpful uh, guide to employers. And after seeing how all these negative behaviors have been tolerated for so long, how can employers improve and implement more effective sexual harassment policies and those uh, related training programs we kind of touched on earlier? Sure. So, what I talk about um, in the um, last several chapters of the book are mm-hmm. exact kinds of, um, you know, a, a numerous ways in which change can be made uh, that could really transform workplaces. And I would say that you have to start at the top. Leaders need to be engaged in this conversation. That is really critical because if you're talking about cultural change, you have to be talking about leadership involvement, saying that this is an important strategic priority of this organization. And following from that, you have to have a willingness to put in place metrics and accountability. We live in a world in which every place measures what is important to them, and they hold people accountable for the success of what is important to that workplace. So similarly, if having a respectful and inclusive workplace culture is an important leadership strategic component, we need to have metrics and accountability to ensure that that happens. We need to look at all the various systems and how they work together to promote people being able to come forward and tell their story and be protected, not just until the end of the process, but for an extended period of time thereafter to ensure that there is no retaliation that's involved. We need to make sure that bystanders, as we've already talked about, are trained for effective intervention and they can be part of the solution. Um, Thinking about how we put in place policies of, uh, you know, I write that zero tolerance does not mean equal punishment. You don't have to discipline everybody in an identical way for a wide range of offenses but you do need to make sure that there are consequences for behaviors. And I think it's really important when we think about training that we talk about training for effectiveness, not liability avoidance. I mean, unfortunately, one of the all too common occurrences in workplaces today is that people put in place training programs that may meet the letter of the law for sexual harassment, but don't address the wide range of behaviors that we're talking about and that I talk about in the book that can really undermine the success of a workplace and the engagement of the people who work there. So you know, there are um, you know, even things like looking at social events and how does the organization 
implement ways for people to get together at work? Is there excessive drinking that goes on or that is allowed? Um, what are the circumstances of social events that make it more or less comfortable for people to engage with one another? Um, you know, are there opportunities to make sure behaviors are monitored in those kinds of environments? So, you know, being able to talk about these issues in the workplace, not avoid them, is real, uh, another piece of the puzzle. So, I'm really talking about a very pervasive look at what needs to happen in the workplace environment. Yeah, definitely. And you, um, Throughout the book, you emphasize the importance of employees feeling safe and respected in the workplace. So I think I think it's a very important message. Thank you. What do you think is next for the Me Too movement? Obviously, there's still you know allegations and news coverage on it. Uh, what what do you see is happening in the future? Well, I think perseverance is critical. I mm-hmm. I think we can't be afraid of keeping these issues front and center. I worry somewhat about the, you know, this so-called Me Too backlash. We hear about men saying, well, I'm now afraid to be alone with a woman or mentor a woman or champion a woman in my workplace because I'll be falsely accused. And the irony of that is that people don't report the most egregious kinds of actual behaviors. So the idea that there's going to be all these false reports because you're meeting with somebody that you're trying to help in the workplace is quite a stretch. So I think we have to be vigilant about not letting this Me Too backlash get in the way of really solving the problems of workplace misconduct. And I think that, you know, going back to that word perseverance, we need to keep this a front and center topic and make sure we have in place the systems we need to address it. Definitely. And your book definitely contributes to that conversation. So is there anything else you'd like to discuss today? I think the only thing I would mention in addition to these issues that we've been talking about in the last few minutes about what needs to be done is one of the things I talk about in the book and you know have have seen and been involved in is the idea of workplaces conducting internal assessments where they look at uh, you know maybe have a third party come in. however, they they take an accounting um, of their employees and learn about what is going on in that workplace that needs to be improved. Because we can surmise or we can guess what the challenges are, but until people are really asked in a confidential and safe and secure setting about what what the challenges are there, it's very, very hard to know what really needs addressing first. And the other thing I would add is the emphasis on unconscious bias training. I think that every workplace should have mandatory unconscious bias training every single year because the science changes all the time. There are always new and fascinating studies. We're learning so much to share about this important topic. And I think it is a helpful way for people to understand just how much uh, the understanding of the way our brain works can impact how we can develop a much more respectful workplace environment. Yeah, definitely. Those are great points to add. Where can our listeners reach you if they're interested in learning more about your work? Oh, thank you. My website is recleaninstitute.com. My last name, R-I-K-L-E-E-N, 
Institute, one word, RecleanInstitute.com, or even email me directly at lreclean, L-R-I-K-L-E-E-N, at RecleanInstitute.com. All right, great. Thank you so much, Lauren, for joining me today and talking about your book. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun speaking with you. You can purchase The Shield of Silence at the ABA web store. Go to AmericanBard.org forward slash products. That's AmericanBard.org forward slash products. If you enjoyed this episode of the Modern Law Library, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.